Ladies and gentlemen, guests and students and faculty, it's a pleasure to have you here, and I'm impressed with your patience. We apologize for the delay in the beginning of this morning's lecture. Welcome to the LSE. My name is Craig Calhoun. I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science, and it's a great honor for me to welcome Martin Schultz to the LSE today. As I'm sure you are all aware, Martin Schultz is president of the European Parliament. My notes tell me to let you know his Twitter handle is at EP underscore president. He was born in 1955 and grew up in Hellrath, Germany. At 31, he was elected as the youngest mayor of North Rhine-Westphalia. Since 1994, he has been a member of the European Parliament. In 2004, he was elected group leader of the Socialists and Democrats. He has been president of the Parliament since 2012. And on July 1, 2014, he was re-elected as president, becoming the first president in the history of the European Parliament to be re-elected for a second term. This perhaps has a bearing on his remarks today because I think it is a sign that difficult times do not make for a lack of confidence. Martin Schulz will outline for us why he thinks the EU, despite its present bad shape, remains a good answer to global problems and needs fixing, not ditching. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hash LSEEKEU. I would ask you to please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event, which is being recorded. And because it's being recorded, I hope you'll try to maintain quiet, but also when we get to the question period, say who you are and make your questions reasonably brief. The recording will be made available as a podcast, should there be no difficulties. This lecture is part of the Perspectives on Europe public lecture series run by the European Institute of the LSE. The lecture is a contribution to the debate on what has become known as Brexit. This is a subject on which the European Institute is focusing very strongly at the present. Notably, it is leading, and my colleague Ian Begg, who is here, is leading an LSE commission on Britain's future in Europe. This brings together experts and public figures from across Europe and around the country, and this will publish a report on the evidence that is collated in the spring. As I suggested, there will be a chance for you to put questions to Martin Schultz after the lecture. But now, will you please join me in welcoming the President of the European Parliament to speak about Britain and the EU, a view from the European Parliament. Thank you. Thank you very much for the... Warm welcome. Thank you very much, Director, dear students uh, of the London School of Economics, ladies and gentlemen. Let me first uh, thank all of you for being here and the London School of Economics for putting this event together. And uh, I present my excuses for my delay, but the people responsible for it are sitting here in the first row. Um, Not you, Tony. Yeah. <laughs> it is, uh, I must admit, a great honor for me to deliver a speech at this prestigious university 
and I look forward to hearing your views. I'm well aware that my reputation precedes me as being a guy who wears his heart on his sleeve. And I'm proud, even as a president of the parliament, to continue with that uh, behavior. Some would even claim that I'm a provoker, always looking for trouble. But rest assured, I have not come to London to pick a fight or to advise the British government on what to do, nor to lecture the British people on how to vote. I have come here as an elected politician, a representative of the European Union, one who is a passionate European, and uh, I am proud to say so, but a pro-European who is deeply worried about the state of the European Union. I have come here to have a realistic debate and share my concerns with you about the shape of the European Union. Ladies and gentlemen, we are living in turbulent times. For the past few years, the European Union has been operating in permanent crisis modus. Confronted with one challenge after another, we rush from one emergency summit to the next. More than once we have come to the brink of catastrophe, avoiding disaster by the skin of our teeth. From the onslaught of the financial crisis, which swept from the United States over the Atlantic to us, to defending the euro against attacks of speculators, to dramatic youth unemployment, the looming Grexit, the conflict in Ukraine, the brutal terrorist attacks in Paris and elsewhere, which painfully reminded all of us that Daesh poses a global threat and continues to destabilize Syria, where people are fleeing from the bombs of the Assad regime and the brutality of this so-called Islamic State. 2015 was the toughest year I have ever experienced in my more than 30-year-long political career. But 2016 might get even rougher, especially looking at international affairs. In my speech, I would like to highlight for four issues, issue areas. Firstly, the refugee crisis. Secondly, the threat posed by Daesh and the challenge to stabilize Syria. Thirdly, the need to find a political solution for Ukraine. And fourthly, the ongoing debate about the British referendum. Ladies and gentlemen, without a doubt, migration presents an epochal challenge to Europe and to the world. Today, more people are fleeing from wars, conflicts, and persecution than at any other time since the Second World War. 60 million people globally. And that's why well-justified Ban Ki-moon spoke even yesterday about a global challenge, a global problem. Over a million people arrived in the EU in 2015, 
Reactions have varied from welcome parties in one country to fences around another country. Thousands of Europeans have greeted arriving refugees with food and water, collected clothes and, or toys for the children. They volunteer in shelters and help teach language lessons. For this display of human decency, they deserve our deepest respect. Yet, the challenge is big. The numbers are impressive. Some of our citizens are worried by them. Others are even afraid. This is understandable if you look at the sheer magnitude of the issue. But fear is never a good basis for politics. So let us overcome the fear. Stop the blame game. Stop this day-by-day -day reactive politics. Let us instead anticipate solutions and be realistic. Realism demands that we accept at least three facts of the current refugee politics. Firstly, a crisis of this magnitude cannot be solved by nation-states single-handedly. But it can be solved through cooperation. And it can be managed if we start managing it together. It is not a crime to cross a border and to seek asylum. But of course, the EU must control its external borders, and we are committed to delivering in the next weeks and months on a European Coast and Border Guard Agency, getting EU-Turkey cooperation to produce results and improving the framework for asylum and also for returns of those who have no right to stay. Secondly, as long as the root causes of migration persist, people will continue to come. Arrivals have been spiking in Europe since this summer as violence again exploded in Syria. 250,000 have so far died in the war. Half the population have fled their homes. Since 2011, the war in Syria has been the world's single largest driver of displacement. And no matter what some claim, anyone running from the bombs of Assad and the brutality of Daesh will not be deterred by a rough sea, by walls or fences. For too long, we have turned a blind eye to the suffering of the Syrian people. Every day, the war drags on, the more it fools extremism. We must stop the war. A ceasefire must urgently be negotiated. And I hope that the interruption of the peace talks will be only a temporary one. And there is a chance that in 2016 we will succeed. The Iran nuclear deal, in my eyes, one of the biggest success of EU diplomacy, has made the world a safer place. It can prevent a nuclear standoff in the region. 
But the deal has also opened the door to getting all regional actors around the table to find a solution in Syria. Recent tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia have been a setback, yes. And there is a real risk that relations could further deteriorate. But this should not discourage us from trying. On the contrary, this must encourage even more international mediation between the two parties. The EU has a role to play as we have a privileged access to both countries. This is no time for Europe to stand on the sideline as a spectator. It's time for Europe to act as a reliable mediator. And if we succeed, ladies and gentlemen, the benefits will be immense. After all, the so-called Islamic State and other terrorist groups thrive on the division between Sunni and Shia, between Muslim and Western nations. Bringing them all together around one table under United Nations meditation is the key to building consensus and unblocking the cruel conflict in Syria. Thirdly, until and unless Syrian refugees have a dignified life in the neighboring countries of Syria and can hope for the future, they will risk their lives to come to Europe. Turkey, ladies and gentlemen, is now hosting the largest number of refugees in the world, including more than 2.5 million Syrians, half of them children. Another 1. million Syrian refugees are registered in Jordan and Lebanon. This is one refugee per three Lebanese. I refuse. One refugee per three Lebanese. The King of Jordan yesterday on the conference here said the situation in my country means that the United Kingdom would have received the whole population of Belgium in this country. These countries display a generosity which is truly impressive. But faced with, with such numbers, they have reached their limits. Too many refugees face dire poverty, lack of food and health care. Half of the children don't go to school. Most refugees live under the national poverty line. The most vulnerable refugees living in Lebanon have seen their food ration cut to 13 cents per month because the World Food Programme ran out of money. What a humanitarian scandal and how short-sighted the former United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Antonio Guterres, stated that the lack of funding triggered the migration flow reaching Europe in recent months. The refugee felt abandoned by the international community, faced with such harsh conditions, without hope. 
Who can blame people for seeking a safe haven and a future in Europe? Clearly, we must support Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey in that task. Yesterday, here in London, the Syria Donors Conference made headway towards this goal. The pledges for 7 billion euros are impressive, and I thank Prime Minister Cameron for convening the conference. But ladies and gentlemen, pledges are one thing. The money must then also be paid. Last time we pledged 4.2 billion, and until today, out of that conference, only 1.9 billion were paid. So conferences and promises is one thing, but to transform it in concrete action is needed. The, ladies and gentlemen, ensuring humanitarian relief, providing for education, jobs, and economic prospects are imperative if we were not to witness a lost generation growing up in the region. Unfortunately, Syria is not the only crisis zone in our, on our doorstep. The situation in eastern Ukraine continues to be worrying. Who among us could have imagined that in Europe borders could be shifted once again by force of arms? That once again in Europe people should be living in fear of war. And yet, it has happened. President Putin's irresponsible actions, the annexation of the Crimea, the acts of aggression perpetrated in eastern Ukraine and Russia's repeated failures to honor its promises are only too reminiscent of the Cold War era. What happened in Ukraine was a bitter blow, not only to the people on the Maidan, who risked their life to secure the freedom and future of their country and who waved the European flag, I want to add, but to us all. Europe's security architecture has come under attack, an architecture that we so painstakingly built after the fall of the Berlin Wall 25 years ago a security architecture that keeps the peace on our continent and is meant to improve economic prospects. Now, the law of the jungle threatens to return to international relations. I say this because we cannot stand idly by and watch as fundamental principles which underpin dealings between states, rules which we all accept are disregarded. As a representative, or we all as representatives of a union based on shared values, we cannot allow powerful states simply to ride roughshod over those rules. They apply to everyone. Since the beginning of the conflict and after the unlawful annexation of Crimea, the European Union has worked towards a peaceful solution of this conflict in our immediate neighborhood, because we know that the only viable solution is a political solution. The Minsk ceasefire agreement reached in February 2015 under the auspices of Angela Merkel and François Hollande did bring about some de-escalation on the battlefield, but most provisions of the agreement 
still remain unfulfilled. In 2016, the EU clearly must push more forcefully for the implementation of the Minsk Agreement. To date, it is the only document signed by both Russia and Ukraine and thus the only viable framework for a political solution. Moreover, implementation remains the precondition for lifting sanctions against Russia. And in 2016, the EU must prove staying power in this respect. In the Ukraine conflict, we have so far resisted all the attempts at dividing us. And there were a lot of attempts to divide the member states of the European Union on that question. That we resisted all attempts at dividing us is good news in itself. If we Europeans, ladies and gentlemen, stick together, we can achieve so much. Remember the Iran deal I mentioned, or the climate agreement reached in Paris last December. No one thought any of these deals would be possible. These examples must encourage us that we Europeans can and must take more responsibility on the global stage. At a time when the United States are increasingly turning inward, in a time when Russia is challenging the global security architecture in Ukraine and Syria, in a time when China is rising in East Asia and simultaneously slowing down economically, surely we Europeans have to stick together more than ever. European diplomacy built on dialogue, perseverance and multilateralism is what the world needs in 2016 and beyond. And surely, Europe needs the United Kingdom with its foreign policy experience and clout, its open market policies, and its trade track record. If we want to have hope of solving any of this crisis, and even more so if we want to maintain the global security architecture and shape the future world order, this is why, personally, I'm a strong supporter of the United Kingdom remaining in the European Union. And this is, and this, ladies and gentlemen, despite the fact, and I admit this is quite frankly, that the British often test our patience and goodwill with their continuous demands. Yes, they are demanding, they push hard, they insist, they just don't let go. Many of my colleagues say behind closed doors, don't stop a rolling stone. If the Brits want to leave, let them leave. I do not support this line, that just because the United Kingdom can be frustrating, it would be in our interest to let it go. I believe we need the United Kingdom to make the European Union stronger and better. And to make something stronger and better, Sometimes it's necessary to push hard and to be critical. When the United Kingdom says it wants to make the European Union more democratic, more transparent, more competitive, and less bureaucratic, I am in. 
Anyone with ideas on making the EU better is pushing on an open door with the European Parliament. Anyone who comes with proposals which are in the best interest of all is welcome with open arms. But proposals which cater to narrow self-interests risk undermining the common good or would set dangerous precedents for a Europe a la carte. Such proposals will meet with resistance from the European Parliament. Earlier this week, President Tusk presented his paper, which will serve as a basis for the United Kingdom's renegotiation. We are now studying it carefully. And the saying goes, the devil is in the detail. Therefore, I want to raise my concerns, not in some bit to be sensationally controversial, thereby putting the European Parliament center stage. Rather, I do this because the European Parliament, ladies and gentlemen, needs to see its concerns addressed early on to avoid a serious roadblock later on when legislation will need to be debated and adopted in the European Parliament. The European Parliament stands ready to act as an honest partner in the renegotiation process. That being said, there are concerns and we will defend the fundamental principles and objectives of the EU. Please allow me to explain what I mean by picking two examples. First example, the so-called multi-currency union as demanded by Prime Minister Cameron. The currency of the Union is the Euro. The treaties are very clear on this. And the treaties also guarantee an opt-out for the United Kingdom. There is simply no need for further clarification. However, there is a need for clarifying possible de facto veto rights due to the ambiguities in the present text, texts, texts, <laughs> giving a de facto veto to any member state in the European Council on Eurozone issues is unacceptable for the European Parliament. Such a step would entail the risks of a paralysis for the Eurozone. The United Kingdom government claims that its goal is not to obtain a veto. I spoke with Prime Minister Cameron yesterday night about it, and uh, once more he repeated, that's not our goal, and I welcome this. But if the effect of any future decision creates this possibility, and the current text on the table still risks this, it matters little if there is no explicit wish for a veto. The danger is manifestly there and it is too important to neglect. So some work is still needed on this and uh, just in the very moment the so-called Sherpa meeting of the representatives of the governments uh, and the European institutions is discussing uh, in Brussels. Secondly, so the so-called benefit debate 
if freedom of movement creates practical problems on the ground, if there is systematic abuse, as, it, as is often rightly or wrongly claimed, if schools are overcrowded and hospitals overstretched, as the British government states, of course, these problems have to be solved. And if there are indeed EU citizens coming to the United Kingdom more for the benefit system than the work opportunity, this also needs to be addressed. But solutions cannot come at the price of discriminating against EU citizens. This is a fundamental principle of our union. The Commission now commits to proposing a so-called emergency break. This emergency break would have the following real-life consequences. Claudia is a German national. And in 2017, she comes to work at the London School of Economics under your directory. <laughs> she is denied in-work benefits. And she is told that she will only receive the full benefits in 2021. Her British colleague John, also employed at the university, doing the same job, receives the benefits in full. Even though EU laws as interpreted by the Court of Justice, gives Claudia a right to equal treatment. And even though Claudia is paying the, the same taxes as John. At the same time, John's son, Gary, also a UK national, goes to Germany to work in the IT sector and receives full equal treatment as does his Spanish colleague, Raquel. Is this the European Union we want to live in? Allow me to say this very clearly. The European Parliament will support all proposals which fairly address real problems, which may emerge from free movement as long as they do not cause discrimination and undermine European values. The European Parliament is fully aware of its responsibility in this process and will step up to the plate. The big picture is that the United Kingdom and the EU both stand to win by remaining together. And let's speak a little bit more about the big picture. In the times we are living, and therefore I described so intensively the broader international framework, we must always keep this big picture in mind. I believe that the EU is stronger with the United Kingdom as a member. I need no more convincing. For the United Kingdom leaving the EU would entail the risks of a second Scottish independence referendum losing foreign investments, damaging London as a leading financial marketplace. Let's face it, 
A huge chunk of London's attractiveness for global finance is down to it being part of the internal market. And as often said by the United Kingdom's government, the strong, sound, and resilient eurozone is an advantage for the United Kingdom. Those who argue for the out campaign usually don't paint a clear picture of what leaving would entail in their eyes. How would years of negotiating the Brexit affected the British economy? I was asked if we leave, how long it lasts to renegotiate a new deal with the European Union. I couldn't give an answer, but in the meantime, you are not part of the single market. Would they want to keep access to the single market like Switzerland, which, by the way, entails paying, because there are these uh, people claiming the Switzerland model that means paying into the EU budget and observing the rules without having a say when the rules are being drawn up? Or would they want to lose privileged access to the biggest single market of the world? The UK has one of the most open markets in the world. This is great. It's the foundation of your wealth. But it also makes Britain very vulnerable to global economic and financial crisis and to the volatilities of the global markets. For 2016, a slowing down of the Chinese economy and ongoing rebalancing efforts are to be expected. The oil price remains low. The gradual tightening of the U.S. Monetary policy, the dramatic decline in imports by some emerging markets and developing economies weigh heavily on global trade. With such prospects, isn't it reassuring to be part of the biggest single market of the world? Being part of a big block makes countries more resilient against external shocks and less vulnerable to the volatilities of global markets. Britain does half of its trades with the European Union. Leaving the EU would be bad for pay and jobs, while staying in is good for prosperity and security. Some things are as simple as that. It is my firm conviction that staying in the EU is better for the UK because staying in the European Union is better for any European country. You don't believe me? Just look at the world around us. We are living in a world which is becoming more interdependent by the day. Russia is becoming more aggressive. China more assertive. Yes, the economic prospects for the emerging markets are not great in 2016, but the long-term trend is clear-cut. Europe and its nations will have an ever-decreasing share, both in world GDP and in world population. I know it is a bitter pill 
to swallow. When I talk to people in my home country, they tell me, oh, Germany is strong. We are 82 million people. The fourth largest world economy. Surely we could go alone. But what are the 82 million against China's 1.3 billion? China, is, China, which is set to overtake the United States as the biggest world economy in 15 years. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if uh, in 2050 I'm still president of the European Parliament and could address the London School of Economics. I hope all of you will still be very active in 2050 with your families and your children. But with your children in 2050, Europeans will make up just 5.4% of the world population. That means 94.5% of world population are living not in Europe. In 2050, neither Germany nor Italy or France the United Kingdom nor any other EU member state will any longer be a member of the G7. They will be second-tier countries. In 2050, the world economy will in all likelihood be dominated by the big three, say China, the United States of America, and India. These figures must give us pause for thought. The world, ladies and gentlemen, is changing. The 21st century will be the century of world regions. The president of China, Xi Jinping, once put it to me this way. We, the Chinese, 1.3 billion are a world region. Our Indian neighbors, 1.1 billion, are also a world region. And the United States is a world region. Latin America, with the emerging countries like Brazil and Mexico, is a world region. And Southeast Asian countries, the ASEAN countries, are a world region this is the way the world is going, said the Chinese president. And what about you, the Europeans? Are you a world region? That is indeed the question facing us as Europeans generally and the British people in the immediate. What role do we wish to play in the 21st century? Do we wish to ensure that our interests prevail? and help steer globalization along a course converging with our own values? Do we wish to protect our democratic and social model? How do we wish to rise the new challenges of climate change, international terrorism, or migration flows? Left to their own devices, all European countries, including my own, rapidly come up against their own limits when it comes to acting effectively.
If we Europeans fall apart, laboring under the fond illusion that now of all times the finest hour of the nation state has arrived, we should make no mistake about the consequences. We will be left to drift insignificantly into the backwaters of the world political sea. Don't get me wrong. I don't want a European superstate. But I have always found, and still do, the concept of an ever closer union as proposed and introduced into the treaties by no other than the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, John Major, is a very convincing and appealing one. Nation states are not one of world history's nine-day wonders but rather the political embodiment of French, Swedish, Portuguese, Polish, German or Slovenian sentiment. That we wish to remain British or Germans, for example, is obvious when we consider how much importance we attach to our respective languages and cultures and to football or cricket. Yes, nation states are here to stay and that is good. That is a good thing because people need a home. They need identity. And as a mayor, I learned that the closer decisions are taken to the citizens, the better they are. What we need in the 21st century is a smart coexistence between the regional, the national, and the European level because for some issues we Europeans are simply stronger together. 507 million citizens, 28 nation states and the largest and biggest single market in the world put us well and truly into the heavyweight category. Let me give you one specific example where we are stronger together, trade agreements. At the moment we are negotiating the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Agreement, TTIP, just imagine what would happen if each individual European country, Germany, France, the United Kingdom, Latvia or Luxembourg, climbed into its own negotiation ring with the United States. We would find ourselves hopelessly outclassed. But together as the European Union, we can come to a deal with the United States, a deal between the two biggest markets in the world, which will assure that for decades to come, we will remain standard makers and not become standard takers. Hand on heart, can any one of you imagine that, two, that the two biggest economic blocks uniting in a free trade, agree, a trade area on the basis of that agreement? and a free trade champion, that that happens and the United Kingdom remaining outside. Ladies and gentlemen, I am convinced that we all stand to greatly benefit from an EU which is strong and stable. Unfortunately, the European Union has not always proven to be 
either it is suffering from the lack of political will of member states to succeed. In the European Council, heads of state meet global challenges with the mentality of nitpickers. Look only to their own benefit or pass the buck to others. In German, we call this the principle of St. Florian. This gives the gist is, please spare my house and set my neighbors on fire. Only in a Europe, if one house catches fire, it risks spreading to the whole village. If everyone just looks to maximize their own national benefit, the result is one which benefits no one at all. I dub this phenomenon Transformers. The heads of governments jump in the plane in Berlin, Vienna, in Rome, Madrid, or elsewhere as a representative of their national government and their national interests. Once in Brussels, they transform into the body of the European Council, which takes decision for the European Union. Unfortunately, as said, this results in outcomes that are of no use to anyone because the addition of 28 national interests does not automatically equate to a common European good. After the summit, the participants fly back to their national capitals and transform back into national heads of government who then criticize the nonsense those people in Brussels decided. The blame game is adequately known, but recently this problem has got worse. Not only do heads of governments criticize their own decisions, which they took in the formation of the European Council as a body of the European Union, but neither do they implement them. We have taken so many good decisions in Brussels which would help to solve the refugee crisis if they were implemented by national governments. In other political fields too, the European Council has failed in place of long-term anticipatory actions, small-term single-topic actions are preferred. One crisis summit after the other is convened, first on the financial crisis, then on youth unemployment, then on Greek summit, followed by another Greek summit, since some numerous summits on the refugee crisis have been held only to give way to the meetings on anti-terror measures. Once a new subject, a new crisis looms on the horizon, we lose sight of the other problems we considered pressing a few moments before. And with them, we also give up our long-term goals, which we set ourselves to solve existential issues and deliver a good future. Europe was not built by do-gooders or peaceniks or romantics. Europe was built by hard-nosed realists the likes of Churchill and de Gaulle, because they realized 
that sometimes compromise is in the best interest of everyone, not only to preserve peace, but also because some challenges are just too big for nation states to cope with on their own. We do not need the EU to meddle in every little detail. Where there has been meddling, it should be cut back. As I said earlier, the nation-state level and the regional level has an important role to play. But in the globalized 21st century, our countries are no isolated black boxes, but on the contrary, they are closely intertwined. Be it a financial crisis, climate change, or the refugee issue, we are just better off tackling these issues together. And I hope that to win back the trust of citizens, more heads of states and governments will have the courage to explain to their citizens why we need the European Union today more than ever. That the European Union is not about giving up sovereignty, but about taking back control and governance in a globalized world. And finally, that they take the decisions they take in Brussels because they are in the best interest of their citizens. It was for me a big honor to be invited here. I remember very well that as a leader of the socialist group in the European Parliament, I once said these guys in the London School of Economics, blaming you as too economic-oriented and not sufficiently social democratic. <laughs> I was heavily criticized for, for that by former German students here on the LSE who said, you know nothing about that school. <laughs> and that was true in that times. In the meantime, I changed my opinion. And therefore, I'm so grateful that you had such a long patience with me. Thank you very much. I'm afraid we have only about five minutes for questions, so let me group about three, if I may, yep. President, and I'll invite you to answer. We immediately have two in the front row. I see one in the very back. We'll see if there's time for more. Okay, can we get the microphone here? Thank you. My name... We do it uh, question-answer. It's, it's faster. Yeah, you... Yeah. you uh, and I go back here to this. Yeah, uh, please. <laughs> we do it in a parliamentary style. Okay. Um, thank you. I'm Hermione Mackay. Um, if the renegotiation can be agreed at the European Council, to what extent do you expect the political groups in the European Parliament to be able to define united positions, or do you think that they will be fractured? We prepared very well the uh, so-called uh, hearing of the Sherpas of today, uh, these are the representatives of the member states and the uh, European institutions. Uh, they are consulted today by uh, the uh, 
Secretary General uh, of the European Council preparing the 18th and 19th uh, February meeting of uh, the European Council. And uh, I prepared uh, a draft position of the European Parliament with my services and I consulted the parliamentarian groups and our line was shared by an overwhelming majority. Uh, it was not so much surprisingly, especially the European Conservatives who uh, had some objections against us. It's the group where some of the Tories, uh, or the Tories are sitting in, but uh, the overwhelming majority of uh, the European parliamentarians shared our line, and our line is we want to fare a constructive and fair deal to find a constructive and fair deal with the United Kingdom in the line of what I just raised in my speech here. Maggie Ellis, um, amongst other things, I coordinate a European group here um, about e-health technology. And we are constantly made aware about the interference by the media. And I feel one of the biggest enemies to the whole position about the European Parliament, the Union, anything to do with Europe, is so negative in the media. All aspects of the media, the main newspapers, the television, and even ordinary magazines will have letters from somebody who are now blaming Europe for flooding in Britain. So how can you manage the media? Because frankly, they're far worse than the anti-European speakers. Uh. <laughs> For a politician, it's extremely riskful to answer to your question in the way, <laughs> in the way, how can you manage the media? I can't manage them. Uh, and I, even I admit, I would not if I could, because uh, uh, there we have, uh, for the time being, some of uh, the countries I spoke about here who try to influence the media from a governmental uh, point of view. This is inadmissible. Uh, freedom of media and freedom of expression is a non-negotiable fundamental value of the European Union. And I would say it is not the media. There are some media, not all. There are also journalists, and I don't say it to flatter them who are here in the room, there are also journalists who are serious people, some of them. Uh, <laughs> We are living in times of fight. A fight means politicians have to meet directly their voters. And there are media instruments for a direct di dialogue. I was, for, for example, very reluctant always to use these this, uh, so-called social media, Twitter and uh, what, 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 uh, these other instruments. <laughs> I was not, I'm, I'm a bookseller, I was not familiar with, uh, with this media. But I learned during the last years that whenever media writes something I found unjustified, wrong, or badly, poorly explained, I could in a direct contact with my voters who raised questions to me on Twitter, on, 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 on yeah, is that Facebook, <laughs> or uh, WhatsApp, <laughs> or whatsoever. <laughs> I could get, and this is, a, is, 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 is to return to previous times. In previous times, politics happened so. Parliamentarians went out to the constituency in the small villages, in the halls, in the pubs, and spoke directly 
with their voters. Today, we can communicate, communicate directly with our voters, and therefore, my counter-strategy is to try to spread via these networks which are existing the moment I feel the media wrong, my opinion and my position. And this is working. Okay, last question in the back. Yeah, I'm Martin Wenzel. I'm a social policy researcher here at the school, um, and I'm probably one of the Claudias uh, that you referred to earlier, as I suspect other people are in the audience. Um, so my question is, data seems to be showing quite clearly that EU immigrants in the UK are net fiscal contributors because they come here after being educated at home to spend their most productive years in the UK. Um, so my question is, what is that argument of introducing a double standard in benefits? What is that argument based on uh, by the UK government? UK government argues that uh, there is the risk of a systematic abuse of benefits because people don't come because they want to work, they are not seeking for jobs, they are seeking for benefits. And therefore I have chosen in my speech this uh, wording, if there is a massive proven abuse, member states have for sure the right to fight against it. But that must be compatible with what you just raised. Uh, the principle of non-discrimination and of free movement. And this is, I repeat, the piece of art we have to deliver in the lawmaking process. Uh, I was a mayor. I want to be very, I'm a social democrat, but I, as a mayor, I made my experience with the abuse of our social welfare system. I could uh, tell you long stories uh, that people, poor people, and I understood them, knew how to use some of our rules to get money. This is the right of any local authority or regional authority to be protected against such an abuse. But that should not lead to your or Claudia's case. And that's what we have to look at. Okay. Unfortunately, I have to bring this to a close because there is a class in the room shortly. Thanks to all of the audience, and please join me in thanking President Schultz. Thank you.